1450 BCE. It was the height of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, as the great Thutmosis III, whose eventual conquests brought his empire spoils and territories unlike any other pharaoh before him, peered out onto the horizon as he stood outside the sacred building called the House of Life. His young scribes inside, learning, writing, and copying out the most important information known within his kingdom's vast reach. Suddenly, the air began to change, and on the horizon appeared a strange object, something massive, approaching in the shape of a fiery disk, shining as bright as the sun. Thutmosis watched in awe of this unknown craft, his soldiers now behind him, kneeling from the foul stench emanating from the many strange airships amassing, hovering over top of the city. Thutmosis ordered this to be chronicled. Their purpose was unknown, but their presence would change everything. Like much of the ancient past, we are left simply guessing, fantasizing at the wonders as well as the abject terrors that befell civilizations whose complex histories have been broken and fragmented, both to bloodshed and the ever-flowing sands of time. Some of the most bizarre and world-changing events that have been lost, forgotten. For decades, since the last shots and explosions of the Second World War rang out, it has been a commonly held belief that UFO and extraterrestrial accounts and visitations are nothing but a recent phenomena. Mount Rainier and Roswell in 1947, the Flatwoods incident of 1953, and so many more bizarre accounts that would follow around the world. Leaving behind in many cases the fact that ancient peoples have had far-off sightings of bizarre alien ships in the sky, as well as close encounters and even, of course, abductions for literally tens of thousands of years. These interactions changing the very course of human history. Welcome back into the portal, everyone, as we venture deep into the ancient world in search of encounters and evidence of bizarre alien airships of antiquity. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And What's up? Yeah, I guess so, hey. <laughs> oh, my God. How else do we start this? <laughs> I mean, I feel like we always kind of, like, stumble over ourselves a little bit because we're always so excited to, like, talk to people on our regular kind of, like, trajectory. And now it's been a really long time. So yes. we've missed you guys. We've missed all of this. We've missed 
staring at each other's eyes across the mic and having Amber's perplexed face when I say weird things. Mm-hmm. I've missed it. I've You've missed, missed it, it hey? Because, yeah, we've gone through uh, a lot of uh, life changes in recent times and just yeah. trying to get back on the horse has been a little bit hard. Yes. So here we are, and we're coming at you with something <laughs> classic into the portal. Yeah. Want to give them the little lay of the land there, Andrew? I mean, sure. Yeah, let's give a little lay of the land. I mean, I, before we do, though, I did just want to give a couple of shout-outs, like, first and foremost to everyone who's still listening. Like, that's mm-hmm. awesome. Thank you, yeah. guys. Yeah, you and probably then, should, eh? <laughs> right? And then also to our patrons, thank you so much yes. uh, to our Patreon supporters and uh, to our producers on there, and you guys get your shout-outs at the end as well. And we had a new uh, patron join us as well, Michael Bush, so I just wanted to give that shout-out right off the top because it's been a really long time. So thank you, everyone, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we hope this one, uh, yeah, you know, we, we hope we can stay on track from where we left off. Let's just say that. <laughs> so today... We are discussing, like Amber said, something definitely classic into the portal. Alien airships of antiquity, of the ancient past, mm-hmm. is essentially the theme of today's show. Phantom ships is another way that they're referred to throughout uh, historical accounts and references. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this little intro I have here because I think it kind of tees it up perfectly. Throughout the long and muddled history of extraterrestrial encounters, humans have witnessed and cataloged strange events that have left modern UFO researchers both perplexed and fueled with the inevitably conjured images of ancient humans seeing advanced craft coming from God knows where. The reality is that ancient peoples have had far-off sightings of bizarre alien ships in the sky, as well as close encounters and even, of course, abductions for literally tens of thousands of years and perhaps even longer into what some might refer to as a pre history somehow. The shapes, sizes, and overall appearance of these alien craft are often different and almost always described in bizarre terms of the time, some of which leave us scratching our heads as to why they were there and where the hell they came from. So this is what we're diving into today. <laughs> it's a very Rob Morphy-esque uh, sort of statement you made there. Thank you for saying that. And I that. think <laughs> it's because you've been listening to a lot of Cryptonaut podcasts lately. <laughs> I have been listening to a lot it's of rubbing Cryptonaut. off. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? It's you got to paint the picture, as mm-hmm. he likes to say. So I think. Uh, there you go. I, I really just want well, to do that. Thank you for doing that. So thank yeah. you for the comparison. <laughs> I, I feel pretty good about that. So yeah, we've uh, that's what we're diving into, and we've covered our fair share of you know, UFO, UAP, ET-related stories and content on this show, including submerged uh, craft as well, USOs, if you will. But one thing we haven't done is go a really, like, go really in-depth in terms of the antiquity, the sightings way back in the day, really far back, for some of the most strange and compelling accounts that have ever really taken place in the ancient past. And depending on how you look at it, it could be... Seriously profound. Discs, orbs, lights emanating from the sky, giant shields, floating houses, castles, <laughs> and all kinds of other crazy interpretations. And I think one of the most interesting uh, fascination nuggets in this uh, episode, I think, is going to be the varying interpretations in these accounts that we come across. The varying descriptors and things that seem to parallel one another but are definitely steeped in the cultural zeitgeist of their time. So I think that's probably something that really drew me to this topic. Totally. Mm-hmm. Because uh, obviously UFO sightings we think of as a mostly modern phenomena, something that came a, came about, a, you know, around the 1950s era, like a little bit before that too, but you know what sure. I mean? Like Kenneth really, Arnold, all that stuff. Yeah. It really started to kick off uh, post-World War II, essentially, yes. like that. 
But uh, this episode will bring uh, questions such as, like, you know, how long have these mm-hmm. objects, entities, phenomena, whatever you want to refer to them as, how long have they been in contact with humankind? Or if you want to go back even further, perhaps just with the terrestrial elements of this Earth. Right. Pre-humans, yes. <laughs> perhaps, you know. Yeah. We're very anthropocentric when it we comes are. to these I mean, topics. Surely but, uh, they would have been interested in dinosaurs as well. Sure, sure. Who knows? Maybe <laughs> it was any sort of, uh, what would you call us, the apex predators or apex species yeah. of the planet? Who knows? Who knows? Even if they are, like, we're, we're speaking of them as if there's some sort of intelligence coming. And, and a lot of people argue that, and a lot of people might argue something else. Right. But it's, there's so many different yeah. ways you can look at it. And whether or not we're talking ultra-trust, extraterrestrial coming from galaxies far away or perhaps a lot closer Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe questions of what the purpose is of making this contact or making themselves known maybe more so than anything else right yeah is it uh, is it something that's a domination centric thing is it you know like something that's out of sheer quote-unquote scientific curiosity on their part however they would interpret that i don't really know or are these literally just random objects just that or end, yeah. is it just inside our minds? <laughs> <laughs> All sorts of things. It's like the everything is connected like like type of mentality, though, when we go through this type of stuff. Because we think we're on one topic, and the next thing you know, it's like, like you just said, it's like kind of, it's a bunch of different stuff, potentially. A lot of different, strange, utterly strange concepts, potentially earth-altering Indeed. sort of things. Uh, depending on who you're talking to here, like, you know, we could be talking, like, we watched Stargate the other day, and yes. that was a really cool interpretation of what the ancient Egyptians might have encountered in their time. I thought right. that was fascinating, even though it was classic 90s cheese, you know what I mean? I loved it, though. It was actually, actually no, was it, it even pre-90s? Was that uh, movie 90s? It I think must it was have the 90s. Been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it aged pretty well, like, you know, it that did. we had seen it before. We had just watched it for the first time, but... They're actually, Stargates is a topic that will come up, I believe, in part two of this. I think this is probably going to be a two-parter here, you guys. Most likely. And that, (laughs) because there's a lot to, yeah, there's a lot to get through here. But yeah, that film was awesome. Maybe we will come back around to doing Film Fridays and talk about that. But Stargates do come up in this episode because Mm -hmm. that is something that ties into, obviously, ancient civilizations where we find some sort of their their remains, not their human remains, but their archaeological remains. And the question is, why is this here? What is this for? And there's people that make the implication that stargates might exist on Earth, terrestrial stargates. Perhaps, yeah. And even just bringing up the idea of the ancient Egyptians as one of the central focus points of this particular episode, uh, there's going to be other sort of eras, too, that we're talking about here. Like, you know, the infamous uh, Alexander the Great story, among many others, even biblical examples and stuff. So there's a lot of interesting things that we're going to get into as far as nuggets on this uh, this episode. I I had a a self-quote I put in here. I love this, actually. I love it was all caps, too. I was like, (laughs) was that intentional? I I don't know. I I don't remember, (laughs) but maybe I just really didn't want to forget to say it. But, and it, honestly, reading it back now, like, after making the notes, it's not insanely profound, but I just, like, when we were researching this, I'm, like, always in my head just, you know, putting myself as a fly on the wall, so to speak, as I'm, like, reading this stuff. And it's, like, just imagine being an ancient human. Let's call it, like, 1400 BCE. And somewhere, whether you're on the battlefield or you're in your home or you're walking outside in the field and you witness something that is, like, so unbelievably, like, abject something so super advanced that you cannot fathom how to describe it other than to say it's like a giant cow in the sky or a giant shield in the sky. Like, that's all you can come up with. (laughs) And 
just the feeling that that would give mm-hmm. to an ancient human being, the, how, how powerful that would be. I think it's really cool. I think it would and, inspire uh, religions. <laughs> and I think it did. I'm pretty sure Right? It did. And that's why this is also <laughs> significant. So we wanted to kick things off actually with a quote. And the quote is from a book that we've used as one of our main sources for this episode called Wonders in the Sky, Unknown Aerial Phenomena from Antiquity to Present by Jacques Vallée and Chris Aubeck. Mm-hmm. A couple of uh, UFO and paranormal researchers that are quite well known. We've referenced, well, well we did an entire episode on Vallée. Vallée is definitely one of those household names. Chris Aubeck, less so, but still so. regarded as a very legitimate researcher of the field, of course, and they co-wrote this book together, so that's fascinating. But we were definitely using this as part of the central focus uh, reference material for this episode, among other things, too, I guess, Andrew. Yeah, exactly. Here's the quote I was talking about from Wonders in the Skies and just really speaks to this episode. Most experts in the study of UFOs in the context of popular culture state that visitations by, quote, flying saucers, quote unquote, started after World War II. It is traditional for UFO books and television documentaries to begin with the statement that the flying saucer era began on June 24th, 1947, when an American businessman and pilot named Kenneth Arnold, like we just said, reported a series of unidentified flying objects over Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. Even some well-informed researchers have posed as an axiom, without citing any evidence, that the UFO phenomena is a recent historical occurrence, apparently no more than two centuries old. In the words of one American writer, was that sorry, and that's how it was put in the words of one American writer, this late date is consistent with the idea that UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft bent on studying or inspecting the Earth, perhaps as a result of the atomic explosions of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In contrast, if the phenomena had existed in fairly constant form for a very long time, it becomes harder to hold to a simplistic ET visitation scenario to explain it. Indeed, many documents point to the very ancient nature of these observations. In a recent book on abductions, a Canadian researcher, Canadian, Dr. Persinger has observed that, quote, for thousands of years and within every known human culture, normal individuals have reported brief and often repeated visitations by humanoid phenomena whose presence produced permanent changes within the psychological organization of these people. When these phenomena were labeled as deities, the messages were employed to initiate religious movements that changed the social fabric of societies. Mm. End quote. So, like Amber just said, that's mm-hmm. what we've kind of alluded to. But just the profound nature of people seeing UFOs. Yeah. Like, just to put it in, like, just such, like, layman's terms. Well, things beyond our understanding right. as human beings. Things that go beyond our capabilities and, yeah, inspire just us to, to wonder. Exactly. But just mm-hmm. to juxtapo- ju- juxtapose, like, how profound that is. Someone sees a UFO now in 2022, you're writing it on a forum on Reddit. <laughs> or you're submitting it to a MUFON member or something. Yeah. People are seeing these things, same things possibly, in whatever year, like BCE, and it changes the entire nature of human civilization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, naturally, to start things off, let's go way back. So, the part one of this uh, of our research here is called Strange Phenomena, Way Back, the Way Back Machine. <laughs> we're jumping in here. How far back, you might ask? Well, if we're speaking in extremely broad terms like 
we could go so far back, the ancient alien route. You know what I'm saying? Oh, and we're going to go there. And we will touch on that for sure. <laughs> well beyond 3000 BC and perhaps much, much further, right? Like, why was Gobekli Tepe a thing? I don't know, right? That's ancient alien stuff. But what we're going to start with is a case called the Tuli Papyrus, which is a controversial document that was said to have existed, an, an Egyptian source <laughs> that might take us back way further than any of the other references that we're going to get into here. So this is what this is. Well, actually, Amber's, mm-hmm. debatably, got, debatably. Debatably. Amber's got a really cool one that we're going to get into as well. But I really wanted to start off with this because if this document is real, did exist, it may have held some very important information when it comes to ancient mm-hmm. UFO visitations. And I will say this story we're starting off with does have probably the most meat on the bone as far as uh, le- not legitimacy, but just yeah, just, some good just meat stuff. on there. Yeah, some, exactly. Some, some interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there's definitely some fascination points that make you that the, the paranormal researchers salivate at for sure. So the Tully Papyrus, as it's become called, named after its founder, who we'll get into, is this highly controversial document that some refer to as basically like possibly the most enigmatic UFO ancient text in all the world, not just Egyptology, but it allegedly contains some serious information that's hotly debated. So it's this ancient papyrus, Egyptian papyrus, that contains details and the documentation of this really bizarre encounter with multiple different UFOs during the 18th dynasty in Egypt around the year 1480 BCE, describing some truly incredible events that definitely changed the course of that kingdom and possibly the the world. So we'll debate its veracity in a second here, but we want to get into like what this actually is. We're going to pretend that it's 100% real as we go through this story mm, here. Lay it so, all out. Despite it being recorded on extremely fragile papyrus, it somehow survived, forgotten for centuries until it was rediscovered by a man named Alberto Tulli, who I'll mention in a sec. Some people theorize that this document was shuffled amongst the hands uh, of various different scholars of its heyday, and perhaps it was maybe uh, preserved by a local worker uh, on an excavation far before its discovery in the 1930s. And it, therefore, its significance was kind of lost on people who just wanted to take home a cool piece of an archaeological mm. dig. Well, probably they didn't even know how to translate it. Right? And I'm just picturing, like, my, one of my favorite Poirot episodes where they're in Egypt and the guy's like, just break the seal! Who cares? And they, mm. they break the seal and the seal had, like, cool symbols on it and, like, no doubt excavations in the the teens or 20s or something people would have been like i just want to get into the juicy stuff show me the sarcophagus show me the gold show me the stuff there wasn't maybe the other more potentially academic less headliney stuff didn't necessarily get noticed right away that's Mm -hmm. for sure or preserved or or that well preserved so the text was said to have been uncovered out of the blue rediscovered by this man named alberto tulli reason for its name he was visiting Cairo in the fall of 1933, and he is a real person. We were kind of, like, worried about that as we were beginning to research this. And he was indeed the director of the Vatican Museum of uh, Egyptology and Near Eastern Antiquities. And he was actually the director for over a decade, from 1931 to 1942. Mm-hmm. So and it's on the Vatican Museum website. This is Yeah, and this was sourced from the Vatican uh, archives showing all of their different members and, and directors of their departments and stuff like that. Because there was actually a bunch of different sources being like, this guy wasn't real, or if he was real, he was an amateur Egyptologist. And that makes me so sad, like, when we're researching this type of stuff, because it's like, 
there's almost like mo- over debunking. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like you reading reading something that's like UFO, like just totally like shitting all over UFOs and stuff like that, and then say something like like that, and then it's like, well, it's objectively provable. Like this guy did work for the Vatican Museum. It's over skepticism, yeah. right? Mm-hmm, definitely. So he found this text in a pretty interesting way. It's very much like an Indiana Jones movie or something. He's Mm -hmm. wandering through the marketplace and the shops amongst local vendors in Cairo in the 1930s, and he discovers this one antiquity shop, Antiques, where it had various different scrolls, old texts, and items, but something in particular caught his eye. Tully, while wandering around, noticed that there was one particular papyrus that had been spread out on display that had some interesting inscriptions. But unfortunately, as he was trying to scramble to see if he had enough to pay for it and haggled with the shopkeep, he didn't have enough money to actually purchase this. So what he decided to do instead was grab a piece of his own paper and discreetly copy the text into his notebook as best he could without the shopkeep noticing because the guy, after haggling, didn't really want him there. So this is a copy that would then be later recopied out again and again and again in various different scripts, uh, heretic script, hieroglyphics that were then added by Tully later on. So we have a hmm. uh, hieratic, hieratic, am I pronouncing that correctly? I hope so, to hieratic, <laughs> then to hieroglyphic. I've seen a few different spellings, like the right? hieratic and then heretic. And yeah. Why don't you tell us what the hell that is, first of all? Well, that's, yeah, because, like, I was kind of, when I was reviewing this information, I was like, hmm, I actually have no idea what that is. Yeah. And it is a very early, it's not as early as the Sumerian cuneiform, but it is a very early writing system, and it was a cursive writing system. And it was the predominant system used by ancient Egyptians uh, to write scripts, and predominantly these would have been religious scripts. Right. Or, um, like, written by priests and things like that. But sure. And may have gone into other things as far as, like, government-related sort of things. But, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was basically that primary language um, that rose up in the third millennium, and then it was kind of superseded by the rise of the Demotic, which I'm not really familiar with either. But, yeah, so there's an evolution, obviously. That's one letter away from being not what you want. (laughs) (laughs) The rise of Demonic. Well, exactly, (laughs) because I was like, oh, wait a second, but then I had to read that again. But, yeah, no, it's interesting because um, it's actually read from right to left, um, ah. Yeah, and and in its early phase, you could actually write it in either. I was reading just super quickly. Um, you could basically write it. Oh, what's it called? Like uh, vertically or okay. horizontally, and then after a while, the horizontal version became. So it's similar to like Asian languages, I guess, in some sense. I guess. If it's like vert, like being vertical or whatever. Right to left. I know. Right. Also, that reminds me of uh, right. a couple of different Dragon Ball Z uh, comic books I got when I was a kid, and then when I opened, yeah. it, I was like, "What? It's at the end, at the beginning, and yeah. it's going back. so it's backwards. It's weird, man. Yeah, it does weird strange. things to your brain. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, super yeah. cool. So there was a couple of different interpretations or translations, I guess you could call it. And two, predominantly, the first one was from a guy named Boris de Rachelitz. Rachelitz. Yeah. Is that how you say it? (laughs) Rachelitz. An Italian-Russian Egyptologist who was actually born by the name of Luciano. I can't remember his other, like, his original last name. But anyway, it's pretty cool. Right. But he is, yeah, he was renowned for his writings on Africa as well as an Egyptologist. And then there was also another man who offered his thoughts on it, and it was an anthropologist by the name of R. Cedric Leonard. Right. So this following 
description or translation, I guess, that we're going to read here is provided by Leonard. Uh, it, it, a lot of people do think this is a better translation. And Oh, sorry. And just before you go right into the translation, just to tie this to Tully, just so it's not just like completely Oh, shoot. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. And that's we totally, should, no, that's totally my, out. That's totally my mm-hmm. fault, too. But essentially, um, Leonard uh, was an employee in the same department at the museum and was more skilled with uh, this type of translation. Okay. So Tully was like the, the director, but you can think of him as kind of like the like the uh, like the general manager of a restaurant, right? Like he's not cooking the food, he's not mm-hmm. making the cocktails. He knows how to do some of this stuff, but he's kind of just like he's not he's not the main guy, like actually like digging into the meat of everything. He's running the department, mm-hmm. but, but he, he was like related the guy. exactly. And then the other guy, Boris Dorachlitz, that I mentioned off the bat, there he was kind of separated, but he supposedly allegedly came across these papers and things in. Tully's possession after he had died. Yes. So there was no actual connection between the two men. Right. But there was the recovery of these documents, allegedly, if totally. you follow the story. I've got some credentials for Boris as well. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. You, he's, he's, can, legit. He, he's legit. He existed. Yeah. He's legit. Like, you can look him up. Studied Egyptology stuff. at the Biblical Institute of Rome. Yeah. Uh, Cairo University. So he, he, yeah, he had some education for sure. We're not going to go with his translation, though. The one here that we're going to read out is actually from Leonard, the right. anthropologist that yes. we described in a second. Uh, so he, yeah, so this isn't the full thing, but we do highlight just a few key points here. I'm not going to read out the entire script. And it is important to note that the translation itself is also fragmented. It was not whole or complete. But anyways, let's get into this here because there is some interesting stuff to get into. All right. So here are some key points from the following translation. Quote, in the year 22 of the third month of winter, sixth hour of the day, among the scribes of the house of life, it was found that a strange fiery disc was coming in the sky. It had no head. The breath of its mouth emitted a foul odor. Its body was one rod in length and one rod in width. It had no voice. It came towards its majesty's house. Their heart became confused through it, and they fell upon their bellies. They went to the king to report it. His majesty ordered that the scrolls located in the house of life be consulted. His majesty meditated on all these events, which were now going on. After several days had passed, they became more numerous in the sky than ever. They shined in the sky more than the brightness of the sun and extended to the limits of the four supports of heaven. Powerful was the position of the fiery disks. Hmm. All right. They go on to say here, the army of the king looked on with his majesty in their midst. It was after the evening meal when the disks ascended even higher in the sky to the south. Fish and other volatiles rained down from the sky, a marvel never before known since the foundation of the country. And his majesty caused incense to be brought to appease the heart of Amun-Ra, the god of the two lands. And it was ordered that the event be recorded for his majesty in the annals of the house of life to be remembered forever. Damn. All right, so as I said off the bat, there are some sizable omissions or deletions. And some theorize that this is where parts of the text were 
left out or were untranscribable. Perhaps they had faded into obscurity because of the basic ancientness of the writings. Yeah. And then, you know what I mean? That type of thing. Sure. Other people think these are deliberate attempts to make the content appear mysterious or deliberately leave out omissions that might lead to other conclusions. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but yeah, there's other thoughts too, though. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to pick apart in this, uh, truthfully. And if we're, it, that's totally true. Like, with with omissions and stuff being left, it's like misinterpretations can be made. But it's like, man, oh man, well, there have to be a lot of either things added slash omissions for like it all to not because like everything would have to be you know not match up. It's like even the translation of like if fiery disc isn't there, well, what about what about shining in the sky brighter than the sun? What about the fish mm-hmm. raining down from the sky? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like these various different things that are also referenced in other historical sources, perhaps unrelated to UFOs, but like raining fish, raining snakes, or weird things like that mm-hmm. that might be associated with that type of activity and not just weather events or something. Yeah. I feel like there's just, and, and there's, we, we made a couple of different points here. The first one that I think is significant is obviously fiery disc. This is like, yeah. a lot of people would say, like, debunkers are like, fiery disc, it's a comet, it's something falling from the sky, it's this. But this didn't fall from the sky. These were multiple things that, as it reads here, essentially were, like, suspended above the mm-hmm. city. Like, I'm picturing, like, hovering UFOs Independence Day style. I know, right? Hovering above, like, ready to go. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. For it to have... The description, let's go back to that first paragraph there, because it says here, there was a strange fiery disc coming in the sky so with the no one. head, right? with its breath emitting a foul odor. So that's like a sulfuric sort of, you know, a lot of people would translate yeah. that as like something similar to... Uh, was it the Kenneth Arnold story or was it a different story? Where it, There's a lot of stories, though, that a lot. Are kind of like... Well, there was you know, the Falcon include, Lake we haven't covered. The guy gets burned that's and there's residue on him and that, stuff, right? Yeah, that's one of the earliest ones. But yeah, no, and the idea that it had no voice. So the idea that it's completely silent, too, in the sky. That's very... Right. Like, even for us, right, because we have modern technology that is capable of traveling through air, but we don't have that capability yet or... It's not declassified yet, <laughs> right. at least. That is actually silent technology. Completely, really. like 100%. Exactly, silent. yeah. Like, there's yeah. stealth stuff and everything. But, yeah, not to this extent. Right. And so that's often, obviously, commonly attributed with UFO sightings, where there was no sound associated. And then, again, like, this strange movement, right? It seems like they're describing them descending and ascending as if, like, you know, there's there's deliberate and more coming like more show up and we're like a part of this like you said it sort of starts off with one i do find it strange that like you said here so it's like emitting a foul odor which Mm -hmm. is strange that's definitely like honestly a little bit more commonly associated with if we're thinking it's sulfuric or something like that like with um quite frankly like demonic stories or hauntings and poltergeist activity and like things like Mm -hmm. that like where there's weird smells and stuff like that because i find it strange that Mm. there's that description but then also that it had no sound like as if that has nothing to do with how it's interacting with the air or the the materials of the land or propulsion or anything like that like maybe that's a smell from it like like crossing dimensions or something Perhaps. Just tossing that out. Perhaps. Shining brighter than the sun (laughs) is another interesting aspect that I thought was worth noting. Well, it's also commonly associated with UFOs. Like, even, like, Charlie Red Star. Like, you know, like, there's often the idea of, like, a glowing orb-like thing. And also the idea that it is... I don't know what a rod is sized oh, in this thing. Oh, we know all about it's, rods. It's one rod in length and one rod in width, which means it's either a ball or it's Don't take the rods into this. 
shield-like disc. Right. You know what I mean? No, for sure. Yeah. And is it glowing like Charlie Red Star, or is it shine, or is there light shining off of it because it's extremely mm, metallic? Yeah, that's the other part too. There's yeah, a lot of things, and exactly right. Like, there's a lot of information here. And then, of course, just last but not least, like we said already, like stuff raining from the sky. Like, clearly, this is an association with these being sighted. No comments are made about great weather events taking place. Like the discs showed up, and then there was a hurricane, mm-hmm. and all the sands were blown. And and the army was covered like Cambyses, 50,000 men, right? Yes. So all of this together combined obviously translates into an otherworldly slash highly spiritual experience for these people. Mm -hmm. And for it to be ordered that the event be recorded for, to be remembered forever is pretty powerful, right? Yeah. The one thing that I will say here that's also a big omission in this text is the actual naming of the king, too. We don't get that at all. Yeah, so we have guesses made yeah. by Boris later mm-hmm. on. But they're guesses. But again, and yeah. It kind of... Anyways, yeah, there's there's, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of things to translate sure. ourselves, even from this translated sure. copy, you know what I mean? Or, or interpret, I guess you could say. And that's totally fair skepticism, 100%. And like... And you know, obviously, like if we're wanting this to be true, like the the idea is that maybe like if this is like a multiple, if pe- multiple people had been like retranscribing this before it even ended up in the shop that Tully saw, then yeah, parts of the information could be lost, like the direct association to the king or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Right? But really fascinating stuff, super super interesting. Um, One yeah. of my earliest questions, I was like. Because you were saying how he, Tuli himself, copied it from the heretic script, copied it, and then he added hieroglyphs later on. And I'm like, did he know what he was reading at the time? Like, you know what I mean? Like, Or was he just copying symbols down? Well, there's some speculation that he was using a book that had been published in the 1920s that was essentially like a a dictionary of hieroglyphics that had been published by this guy. After he copied it? Or you mean? After he copied it. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he didn't know what he was. Yeah. So I don't think he was like adding the hieroglyphics huh. right then and there or anything like you know that. That's dumb. It's like, I know this is the 1930s and all. Like, why would you take a freaking picture of this thing? <laughs> I'm just kind of mad well, about that. Like, why are you trying to. And how hmm. discreetly can you be copying down so many different symbols while you're in this dude's shop? Like, that seems like highly suspicious to me. I'm just going to say it because I can't help it. Does <laughs> it though? I yes, mean, like, it if does. you really want to get the information down, like, you're going to find a way to write oh, it down. Oh, you know what I would have done? I would have just. I would have just jacked it. it. Yeah. yeah, I would have just taken it. I would have run to the See streets you, of Cairo. How the heck is yeah. this guy going to find like, me? Or like paid some like Aladdin Anyways. kid like on the street like <laughs> to, to steal it for you and pay him handsomely for it. That sounds like a 1930s movie thing to do. Exactly. Yeah. Why hmm. not? Yeah, it has Indiana Jones written all over it. But it I does know. have Indiana Jones written all over it, for sure. <laughs> but this is all significant if true because if it is, this could be the oldest account of UFO activity you know, watching over the kingdoms of Egypt, possibly mm. even linked to the pyramids. Like, that's... Hello, everyone. Like, we talked about the underworld of Giza and some very strange... Hey, you want to talk mm-hmm. stargates? Maybe we, maybe that'll come up, right? But is there anything to actually confirm this? So, Boris Durachowicz is the only sort of person who's really, like, pushed this forward. And like you said, it's strange. It's like, okay, it's the 1930s. Yes, cameras exist. Maybe Tully didn't own a camera. Not everyone owned a camera. True. Well, if you can afford the script itself, like... Right? I mean, how story, much are yeah. they paying at the, Vat- <laughs> for the Vatican Museum? I mean, in the 30s, like, maybe it's just kind of a... You'd think you'd have some sort of allowance for these types of things, you know? But that's just it, though. It's like, maybe the Vatican was, like, really not receptive to it because of what it was saying. And it wasn't just about 
Anyway, like that's that's just pure speculation mm-hmm. too, though. So we've got this Durachuas guy. He's half Russian, half Italian, which is kind of strange. Highly suspicious. No, <laughs> just highly, just highly suspicious. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. But uh, and yeah, like we said before, he studied Egyptology. He uh, studied translate how to translate hieroglyphics, archaeological, uh, ethnographic field work. He has experience in in Upper Egypt and the Sudan, and he actually taught as a professor as well. Um, so he he definitely wasn't like, you know, like one of those characters that we often mm-hmm. reference on the show, where it's just like a you know a guy who just latches onto a weird story who happens yeah. to have money. Yeah. And then, like, kind of pushes it forward, almost like even, like, the NIDS program at Skinwalker, right? Yeah. Like, Bigelow. It's like, okay, we kind of take you seriously, but not really, because you're just this weird eccentric billionaire. It's kind of hard to, yeah, exactly. Right. He did write quite a f- number of books, too. One of them was called The Rock Tomb of IRW.K3.PTH, which sounds very interesting, okay. as well as something to do with the six figures in the text and hieroglyphic transcriptions or something like that. I don't know. And he's he's a, a renowned photographer, too, apparently. Hmm. Anyways. Yeah. Just a little bit more on Boris here, because yeah, he, he is a central part of the story, for sure. Well, definitely, because he's the one who makes the suggestion that it made the most sense that the original text was making reference to the the kingdom of Thutmosis III, who hmm. reigned from 1504 to 1450 BCE. So he has these, you know, there's portions of his description of the original of the original translation. So, so here, I got a quote from Drachwitz here that's kind of telling. He says this. The transcription I send is from, this is when he's sending it to, um... Oh, that writer from the uh, 14 Le- magazine? No, actually. This is before oh. I think this... Or perhaps it is. Either is he, It was either that or maybe to Leonard, because he did have communication with, you know, this oh. guy from the Vatican Museum, which kind of makes this all seem kind of legit, yeah. right? Anyway, he goes on to say this. The, scr- the transcription I sent is from an original papyrus of the New Kingdom that I found among the papers and documents of the late Professor Alberto Tulli. So, presumably, Tulli taught some stuff, too. I don't know in what. I didn't come up with that. The former director of the Egyptian Vatican, the Department of Egyptology at the Vatican Museum. The original is in very bad condition. The beginning and end are missing. It's writing in heretic is pale and with several uh what is this lacunae lacunae i I actually don't know what that means um lacunae i think is like something that's like oh gosh i looked this up earlier and it has something to do with like um the lines of the text or something here i can kind of do a quick quick thing for you there i'm very curious an unfilled space or interval a gap Okay, that makes uh, sense. A missing portion in a book or manuscript. There you go. Okay. Sorry, that was it. Hey, we should know that. That's a cool word to know. Mm-hmm. Because knowledge is power. The more you learn here on Age of the Portal, everyone. Even if there's parts missing. Even if there's parts missing. So, what does he do? <laughs> he says, I have chosen to send the best preserved and perhaps most interesting part. You know, that quote there, I do think is actually from the article written by uh, Tiffany Thayer. Yeah. That, and I think that's how we started the letter to her, because she said that she had originally okay. been in communication with this gotcha. particular gentleman. That makes sense. I mm-hmm. was unsure if it was either uh, communicating with her or this next name here. I was actually getting confused with, um, with oh, Leonard. Okay. But this is uh, another... Uh, colleague or you know friend or acquaintance of um, Durachowitz, mm-hmm. a person named I actually don't know if it's a man or a woman. Etienne, that's a dude. Etienne mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, Drayton, Drayton, French Egyptologist, essentially working for the uh, Egyptian Museum in Cairo, hmm. where the document was allegedly originally discovered. So he ends up getting connected with Drayton, retranscribes all of this stuff that he has in the original script, sends it off to Drayton, and uh, gets him to translate it. Hmm. Frequently referenced by others in the field. Uh, and sta- and was indeed a, a member of the staff of the Cairo Museum. Just to kind of reiterate that, because this entire story, we're, we're questioning whether who's who is actually real. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's between the two of them that they sort of made this, uh, this it, their thesis was that Papyrus had to have come from Thutmosis III, that kingdom, that okay. period of time. Okay. Anyway. Even though the document has no obvious attribution to that particular... Yeah, and I tried to really get some more details as to why they pinpointed on that. And I guess the only thing that would make... I didn't see anything hmm. specific. The only thing that makes sense to me is essentially, like, the flow. Like, how things were worded in that script and if it would have mm-hmm. matched up with that particular kingdom. I know, right? Or maybe or there, was there was something some... to do with the specifics, like the annals of the House of Life. Like, you know, they do, yeah, like they a do make to mention that. to that a couple times, like maybe... And and it does say in the year 22, in the third month of winter, in the six hours day. You know what I mean? So in the year 22. So what year 22 is that? You know what I mean? Yeah, like what does that, that actually mean? We don't actually know. Like, but I'm, just to be fair, though, too, like when it comes to lots of Egyptology and like discoveries and stuff, things that are found, like it sometimes takes forever and never even happens for a lot of like stuff that's discovered where it's like I, no idea who yeah. this is making reference to. Well, maybe it refers to the year 22 of that particular pharaoh's reign. Maybe that's what they're talking about. Yeah, like he reigned for 22 years. If anyone out there is an Egyptologist and can answer that question, we would love to know. I would love to have an (laughs) Egyptologist on this show. That would be amazing. We've had some pretty profound, distinguished guests. An Egyptologist would be Mm -hmm. amazing. Yes. Tiny bit more to the story, though, but we wanted to kind of... We have so much more to get into with this episode, but... I just, I got so interested in this Tully Papyrus. I want it to be real so freaking bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But there is a little bit more to the story, according to Jacques Vallée. Well, they have, yeah, Vallée and Albeck, the two co-authors of the book we mentioned before, Wonders in the Sky, they have described it as a hoax. And according to these two researchers, since Tully himself had allegedly copied it during a single viewing of the original papyrus using uh, what he referred to as his ancient Egyptian shorthand, and with Davratowitz never having seen the original, in their opinion, even though there is alternate claims that he actually did see it, right. uh, it says here, not the original original that was in the shop, but no, like the original but the translation. Original translation yeah. Anyways, yeah. it says here, like they, they just think that the text that was the translation provided by Thule would have contained very obvious transcription errors just because of the situation he was in, like making it said. impossible to <laughs> verify. For my, like, when I first saw this, I was like, all of this just sounds like such a tall tale. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah I have my own reservations to a certain degree, too. But just the fact that these individuals did exist does lend itself some credence. But again, very good storytellers can, like, weave in fact into their fiction to make it seem more believable. Yeah, that's true. But it's true. I'm not saying that it's not. But so basically, they're making allowances for the story itself to be true. They just don't think that Thule's like translation would have been that accurate. And I totally agree with that. But like I kind of made reference to before, it's like even if he only got 20 percent accurate, 
of what he was actually seeing and like copied the symbols or whatever. Mm. If what he was copying, that 20% accuracy out of everything he copied down and they translated it and it said some of those weird things and we have no way of verifying whether the originally copied from was something legit, then it then then he's still talking about some very strange events. Yeah, like it how, doesn't have to be fully how close perfect. is the character for fiery discs to something else? <laughs> like, I'm like, when they're hovering was, for that long, was, like nothing. Was, what if it was referring to an army of shields? And we and it's just like a misinterpretation. What if we're talking about literally the arrival of the sea peoples? Or something like that. You know what I and mean? The, uh, whoa, okay. And, and then maybe yeah. maybe, maybe that was Sky's mistranslation stuff. of C. Right. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm not I don't know how close these little characters are. I get what you're trying to say. Thing. I know I totally appreciate what you're but, trying to do, and I like that reference. We do know that uh, the sea people showed up during the reign of Ramses. No, I know that, third, but what if there was other other events? incursions or something? Well, exactly. Sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Or I'm, maybe it was a different people, so you know what I mean? A right. Different so we were we, you, you just you always have to be ready to scratch off some of the other things that wouldn't allow for that, like the mm-hmm. raining, the raining fish. Yes, that's pretty or incredible. The, the bright as the sun. Like, well, why would they be as bright as the sun? That's exactly it too. Unless they had really shiny polished armor, really shiny, really shiny. But um, no, no. And then, yeah, you're right though. The idea that this didn't actually amount to a battle. This was almost just like a Thank presence, God. something that they recorded and saw, something that was incredible. In my opinion, too, I almost thought about it. Like, what if? <laughs> I had this moment, like, what movie am I thinking of right now? Where it's basically, I think it's Bruce Willis, if I'm not mistaken. The Fifth and Element? It's, no, and it's like the end of the world where there's a comet coming towards them, and they're like, the whole Armageddon? movie, they're trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's it. Armageddon. Armageddon. And the whole time, it's like the things are just getting bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter in the sky. And more, with more of them appearing, I'm like, well, maybe there's just other sorts of types of meteors. But there is no explosion. There is no, no. huge catastrophic scenario here it's just kind of strange unless they happen to miss the earth but i don't know i have no idea i think there's a lot of things i make yeah it does make this type of skepticism really hard the only thing that i fall back on again is the idea that this could just be mistranslated too yeah, and that's possible. I finally made it down to that uh, that name I was making reference before. There's been suggestion by debunkers that Thule and possibly others essentially used um, this book called The Egyptian Grammar, written by a guy named oh, Sir Alan okay. uh, Gar- Gardner, uh, which is a textbook on the Egyptian language, hieroglyphics, different te- script, published hmm. in 1927. Okay. But this isn't conclusive either. It definitely like matches up for some of the stuff. Hmm. You know, and then of course debunkers continue on from that, saying that the you know actually a bunch of the stuff I came across was like this didn't exist until 1953 when it was published in Doubt Magazine, the 14th Society Magazine, Tiffany Thayer, like you made reference Thayer, to, yeah. mm-hmm. or Thayer rather, mm-hmm. uh, who was a co-founder of the 14th Society in New York in 1931, specifically to promote the ideas of Charles Fort, hmm. father of yes of Fortean, exactly. But like we've already so. made reference to, it's like she says herself that. The the transcription was sent to her directly by Boris Durachowicz. But does Thayer have her own agenda? You know what I mean? Like, can you believe what she says? And can we go back to Rachel, sorry, Rachel Wiltz? 
Wilts. There is an Sorry, L in Wilts. there. Wilts. Sorry, my mistake. Ratchet Wilts. Um, could we go back to him and confirm with him that he was in correspondence, which obviously we can't at this point because they're both fucking, they're dead. Well, not there. She's probably alive. Maybe. Maybe. Actually, right. 1953, maybe not. Actually, that's a maybe long time. Maybe not. Yeah, it's a long time, but. And if she co-founded the 14th Society of New York in 1931, she's definitely not alive right now. So but both of these guys are gone to their graves and. True. That's frustrating to me. <laughs> Always. <laughs> as <Always>. usual. <laughs> I will say though that like I think you know Charles Fort early renditions of paranormal research compared to kind of the internet scouring like sea of podcasts and stuff like that today wasn't as motivated to ha- it's not like it was like the National Enquirer at the grocery store checkout and wanted to ha- she wanted she needed to just ride whatever and <clears throat> we do have that quote from above where it was essentially Dratchwitz sending her that mm. message, right? That is true, actually, yeah. If that if that is something that she <clears> actually <throat> wrote, or if, if that was yeah. just part of the article and she used it as, like, here's a direct quotation from this individual who actually existed, who actually has credentials, and la la la, and just weaving it into her own fictional narrative. Right. That's where we kind of get a little bit muddied. Of but course. Yeah. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. Come on, Tiffany. Let's, uh, let's... I hope that you were a legitimate researcher and that you were uncovering yeah. stuff from the woodwork because, yeah, this is a fascinating story. I, I mean, people did, including her, make, you know, direct uh, in- inquiries with the Ma- with the Vatican. This was a statement from 1953 um, to, I believe, Doubt Magazine mm-hmm. from Dr. Uh, Walter Ramberg, who was, quote, uh, the scientific attache to the U.S. Embassy <laughs> in Rome. Okay. okay. He said this, quote, The current director of the Egyptian Society of the Vatican Museum, Dr. Noli, said that Professor Tuli had left all of his belongings to a brother of his who was a priest in the uh, Lateran. Lateran Palace, wherever that is. Presumably, this famous papyrus went to the priest. Unfortunately, the priest died mm. also in the meantime, and his belongings were dispersed among heirs who may yeah. have disposed of the papyrus as something of little value. Well, sad. Well, but then it was picked up by someone like uh, uh, Ratchowitz, who was going through old trunks and old things maybe one day doing his own investigating. Totally. Doesn't that just sound like such a cliche thing, though? Being like, yeah, we don't have the copy, and maybe there was a copy, but this guy gave it away, and now he's dead, and every day, you know, when I went to a yard sale. We're washing our hands, and this is what they're doing. That is a hand wash if I ever saw one. Yeah. So, anyway, the mystery endures with the Tully papyrus. Okay. And whether or not this existed, if it did, it's it's absolutely bizarre. Possibly changed the course of uh, the Egyptian kingdoms moving forward and uh, Near Eastern history. Or North African history, I guess it would be. But, anyway. It's uh, interesting to think if this was just a fragment of what existed back in that day. What else could have been described in that particular encounter, too? You know what I mean? Like, right. Or even in subsequent encounters. What if there was a whole saga of things that happened? Yeah, like the, the king was taken away. Was lifted up. Know. Right? I a do lot have... A people died. A lot of people died. They did. A lot of people died. <laughs> Weirdly, I have to make this reference before we move on, because there's actually a bunch of stuff out there on, online where people are making suggestions that there's possibly a connection between the lost city slash lost continent of Atlantis and the Tully Papyrus. Hmm. Okay, just, anyway, you may, yeah, basically, (laughs) there there are suggestions that because there's an Egyptian connection to the early evidence of the lost content, there was an Egyptian priest named Solon, there's there's some of these references that date further back than the uh, Plato story, or allegory, or whatever, 
So this is all for another day, but essentially the suggestion of this association is that what if perhaps Atlantis lifted off, not sank? Hmm. Anyway. I'm going back to Stargate here. Exactly. <laughs> that's why I'm, that's exactly <laughs> what people are kind of make, com- like making that. That's why they're commenting on it, co- something like this. We're referencing the movie, not the series either, in case anyone's confused. Because we haven't seen Actually, the series. Actually, yeah. We mm-hmm. should make sure that that's very clear. And yeah. I think the first thing I noticed when we watched Stargate is that the main guy was a like one-off character from Seinfeld that George really wants to get him to apologize to, and he refuses to apologize. He's also a very famous actor. I know, but that's it. where I recognized him from right away. I know, because <laughs> we're big Seinfeld fans. <laughs> anyway, mm. so... Well, that's a, that's a good way to kick it off. All right, because we do have other early encounters, and, you know, whether or not this papyrus we've been mentioning throughout this episode truly existed is obviously a mystery, and... Could be just part of the many missing links that uh, that we're still trying to kind of piece together here. Yes. But, uh, yeah, no, like, I, I love this mention here that you included because you, you mentioned, too, it's like maybe this is a fragment. Maybe there's so many other things that used to be a part of the human canon of knowledge and since have been lost like, even through tragedies such as things like the burning of the ancient library of Alexandria, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot out there that we have to assume has been lost to time. Hey, what's up everyone? It's Andrew here. I'm just going to do a super informal ad read. No script on this one. I am totally winging this, uh, even though maybe it doesn't sound like that because, hey, I've been podcasting for a long time. But thank you so much for listening to this ad because this is really important to us uh, that we get a chance to talk about BetterHelp.com as a sponsor. We're really proud to have them as a sponsor just because mental health is so important. And I just wanted to share with you guys because I know I have already in the past, but I have struggled a lot with mental health and it's only been relatively recently in my life. Growing up as a kid, I never really had any problems like that. And I was, I considered myself really mentally strong and you know, as we get older and things change and stresses of life kind of change and, you know, you, more pressures of jobs and different like things in life, I've changed. And the way I've just sort of like subconsciously approached my mental health has changed. And so I've had to seek out some people to talk to. And BetterHelp has definitely been one of those things that's really worked well because you don't have to get in your car. You don't have to go to a therapist. You can access it from literally anywhere phone, tablet, laptop, wherever you are, as long as you have an internet connection, you can get linked up with someone who's matched specifically for you. And also just someone who's obviously a trained professional, you know, and talking to your parents or talking to your wife or your partner or your boyfriend or whoever, isn't always necessarily the best thing. I find that with, uh, with Amber all the time, we are the best team in so many ways. And she helps me all the time, but sometimes she can't help me with everything. And I don't want to like dump all my baggage on her all the time. If I have some stuff that's really like weighing me down or stressing me out. Sometimes it's nice to talk to someone who's literally their job is to listen, a therapist, someone who can really help. Um, so we really highly encourage you guys to check this out. Betterhelp.com slash portal. You get 10% off your first month. And I think it'll really change your life. Even if you're, even if you don't think you're struggling with, you know, a bunch of overarching things, maybe there's just one or two small things that you want to improve on. And that's okay too. Everyone has ways that they can improve things that they can improve on. And mental health is just one of the hardest things to take that first step in like acknowledging that maybe it's good to talk to somebody. So I'm rambling a bit here again. Like I said, this is not a scripted ad read. 
but we really wanted to encourage you guys to to check this out. You get set up within 24 hours of signing up with a therapist that's right for you, and it is vastly more affordable than traditional therapy. And there's even some uh, some ways that people can qualify to be covered uh, covered for the therapy uh, that they receive from BetterHelp as well. So again, that is uh, BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash portal P O R T A L to get 10% off your first month. Thank you guys so much for listening. Let's get into more encounters here because I have a really fun little story and I really want to get into it. And oh, yes. I know it's pretty far-fetched, but that makes it even that much better. I, you don't even need to kick it off like and that. I know how I was being all coy at the beginning of the episode saying, oh, this is an ancient that we're getting. Oh, not even We're close. getting more <laughs> ancient. <laughs> 400 million years. Yes, that's how ancient not we're Not 3,000 BC. We're going to Kentucky, folks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting Get us one. some ancient chicken, baby. Yeah, and it's a truly strange account. This was written by a man named Brad Steger, and this comes from Beyond Magazine. And it tells the story of a man named Melvin R. Gray, who allegedly mm-hmm. recovered an extraterrestrial fossil that was found within a stone. And this stone is described as something that looked like a meteor that had some sort of suspicious indentations, according to Gray. So this man allegedly made the discovery while he was mowing his lawn at home. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't doing an excavation. He was not digging even he's mowing his lawn okay okay sorry i'll I'll get this so apparently he just couldn't let this rock go i don't know and he decided he would bring this into his little lab at home there Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm calling it a lab it's probably his garage yes the the only place where he'd go for some peace and quiet in this household right and he studied this rock for several months before he made some conclusions of otherworldly origins, for lack of a better word. So, according to the story here, Gray decided this was something special. So, he was going to make some castings of these very particular indentations that he found with this meteoric rock. Something that revealed to him a spectacular sort of uh, image, I guess you could call it. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. This is just great. So juicy. Essentially, what he described was multiple tiny humanoid creatures cast into the stone, along with what resembled a flying saucer that was, quote, no bigger than a wash basin or dishpan. So I'm thinking, like, no more than a foot or two. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So for like a flying dinner, saucer, like a it's a dinner plate yeah. size. Exactly. It's literally a salsa. Yeah. <laughs> so the miniature figures uh, totaled seven, and these all roughly stood about three inches in height and were described as being very much like modern human beings aside from their tiny stature. And, okay, I have a quote here that I got to pull up. Do you got the book handy there? I do. All right. Here so we, go. we just got to read this here because it's it's pretty fascinating, folks. Oh, it's All right. juicy. So we're going to page, if anyone wants to follow along here. Yeah, I it's highly recommend three, picking up this book for sure. 357, page 357. Okay. All right. So we're going to read from the bottom here. So, Gray, this is from him. He reported, quote, The fossilized creatures themselves are humanoid in appearance, looking very much like ourselves and approximately three inches tall. The stone looks rather cindery, as if it may have hurtled through a long trail of space 
melting as it went and finally splashing into some river or lake before it was entirely consumed, leaving a fossil-like imprint for a record, a permanent record, to tell the world that we had visitors to our Earth who had met with some terrible calamity. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Steger, the man I mentioned at the top here that wrote the article, he was not entirely convinced, so the account goes on to say... Um, he said, while acknowledging that with the aid of a magnifying glass, he could make out the outline of a tiny human pilot sitting in a bucket-type seat on the cast that Gray had sent him, he wondered whether it was merely a trick of nature. Yeah. So, anyways, okay. Okay. The story goes on here. There was a man, This is, I love this guy's name, <laughs> by the name of Bufford Ratliff. <laughs> Savor that. Buffered. Okay? Buffered. Does the anyone buff. out there know a man named Nickname, Buffered? Nickname, definitely Buff. Where's Buffered? You better be in shape. Yes. Yeah. So this is another UFO researcher, and he was based out of Kentucky. And he took up the story after reading about Gray in this Beyond article and allegedly obtained the quote-unquote fossil from Gray for himself. After discovering it and having some time to look it over for himself, Ratliff concluded that the craft had two sections that were highly designed and indicated, quote, intelligent construction and designed by intelligent beings, end quote. So Gray and Ratliff together concluded even further that this UFO in particular must have crashed roughly 40 million years ago. Into a lake. 400 million, you said. Or sorry, sorry, 400. 400 400, sorry. I can't read numbers. 400 (laughs) million. I do good with words, not numbers. Okay. Let's just say that. Um, But it had to have crashed into a lake, sinking to the bottom sediments, resting there until it was uncovered roughly 400 million years later. So they're assuming, I think where they get this 400 million mark is the idea that this particular meteor fossil thing must have been cooled, right, by something. So it must have crashed in something that would have preserved its structure instead of it just, like, busting into a million pieces upon right. impact, okay. correct? Yeah. And so maybe what they're dating it to is the last time there was, like, an ice age in the area of Kentucky. That's my only logical conclusions there, but they don't right. really follow it up in the book there. Yeah. So nonetheless, like... This was a highly fantastical story, and obviously Valet and Albeck have their own reservations about it, too. Yes. But it was just so incredible to me. Do they make comments about that, actually, Valet? And they do. I'm curious, actually, because I don't remember reading those specifically. And okay. I'm like, I have to say, too, I'm just going to ask you, and everyone listening, it's like, does it make it more or less believable that the number is 400 million years? Like, if, well, it, was, if it was 400,000 years, would that make a difference? But, okay, yeah. No, they're just dating it because it must have been around the time there was a large body of water present, which would right. have been during the last Ice Age, which they date back Makes to okay, 400 gotcha. million years ago. Okay. And it's just for me, I'm just trying to, I'm scratching my head still because I'm thinking, like, well, wouldn't have this, what, 
how would this have just been on your lawn, man? Like, what about all the construction? I'm, I'm assuming you're living in a residential neighborhood. Like, there's probably, like, you know, like, it's probably a design community, or maybe not. Maybe I mean, we're assuming, though. Maybe he didn't live in a residential classic yeah. cul-de-sac neighborhood, and he had a acreage and a weird chunk where he had just planted some grass, but he's <laughs> mowing it, and it's actually just been slowly eroding for years. Like, who yeah. knows? I don't know. Maybe. maybe. But, then, but then again, right? Like, maybe the act of mowing it with the lawnmower made that particular shape. Maybe it was just an act of nature. But anyways, to conclude, yeah, um, Aubeck and Valet, they said here, it is evident from the information presented in Beyond, as well as Flying Saucers, so two articles were printed about this particular story, that neither Gray nor Ratliff were able to present any basis for their incredible theory other than their own imaginative interpretation of the rough exterior of the stone. Whatever reference material the investigators used and exactly what tests were carried out were never explained. Hmm. So that's kind of where we get into that. So, right. yeah, no. I, and, and again, right. Like these aren't people that have credentials, so to speak, to back them up in their uh, very hairy hypotheses. Sure. Uh, but what do you make of this whole thing? The idea of a miniature craft. I find it absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and the idea of like, yeah, like we were saying miniature, but like, what does that even mean? Because like, Three we're inches. no, and I get that. Like to us, that's small, you know what I mean? But everything's mm-hmm. just relative. And you're talking about you know, nine foot tall Nordics and then like this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I find it so fascinating maybe, that it's like, maybe they're real life Tamagotchi people. <laughs> yeah. Amber's got her little Tamagotchi here, everyone that she's like half taken care of as just, we're recording. I just, just making sure it's like, I had to check in on him. Just yeah, make sure he's okay. In. Yeah. A little nostalgia blast from the past for Amber here. He might need to be disciplined. <laughs> <laughs> just he just might. He has full heart, so if he complains, right. I'm, I'm just disciplining him. <laughs> you know, I will say that, like, aside from the size and stuff, the idea or the story of sort of like lost travelers, like ET travelers, that become, um, for lack of a better word, like what I mean, like they're the refugees, basically, right? Like they're 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 downed, they're they're crashed, they're they're in tough. It's like the uh, the team from Kong Skull Island that like gets mm-hmm. stranded, and they're like shit. Um, or like every single episode of Star Trek or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Like every single episode of Star Trek. Yeah, the original Star Trek or, or whatever. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Whatever. I mean, obviously, it's a pretty tough one to buy into, uh, right? It totally I would is. love to see it. But even if we're suggesting mm-hmm. that like this guy ran over a rock with his lawnmower and it like accidentally carved what looked to be like a perfect image of like miniature humanoids in a ship. That's even crazier than, like, the Jesus face and a piece of toast mm. by accident. A hundred percent. You know what I'm saying? Of course. Like, that's pretty impressive. Anyone can burn a piece of toast, That's man. an impressive lawn sculpting. I'm just, like, I'm fascinated by, like, what this guy, this original dude, uh, Gray, does for a living, first of all. How much free time does he have? And where did he get the material to do the castings? <laughs> so many three big questions. Like, <laughs> and where are these castings? So it's going to be a images. plaster cast, like a Bigfoot cast yeah. or something, right? But then, I don't know. I feel like that would be tough, though. I feel like you'd have to be some sort of specialist to do that. Or he employed some. I don't know. But anyways, yeah. that's just another. There's still a few mm. questions there. I wish we could do some follow-up on here. I wish we were famous enough that people would hear these stories and be like, I'm coming forward. Like on, uh, what's it called? Like the like Coast to Coast or something uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like... Coast to Coast or uh, what's the what's the true crime series that we were binging hardcore with those two oh, hilarious. I'm Dennis Farina and this guy's dead. Yeah. Like, 
What's that show called? Uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Yes. <laughs> I want to be Unsolved Mysteries. Right? Oh, man. I would love to have Dennis Farina on the show. I don't know if that guy's still around. but He is. He's probably retired. Awesome. Oh, He's probably yeah. on a beach in Miami somewhere. Yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, okay, just to like kind of like try to draw some lines here to the... Uh, the Tully Papyrus story. Like, I'm going to call it that, too, because, like, you read it out, and it is just that. It's kind of similar to this, right? We have no way of truly verifying it, but it's this encounter in the ancient past, and this is, like, if this happened, this would be even further back. And it's it just sort of, like, it just goes to show it's, like, the idea of the prehistory, right? Yeah. And that actually is coming up here in a Ew. second when we talk about some biblical references to <laughs> yeah. abductions, things like that. And we talked a lot about this in our three-part series on the Great Flood. And the Nephilim, the fallen, mm, yeah, actually. and the obviously mm. that they're they're believed to be these like religious and like you know characters in in, in a biblical context, but in a UFO ufological context, extraterrestrial, they are extraterrestrial mm-hmm. beings possibly. Yeah, um, and then we're talking about things like the combination of hybrid DNA and stuff like that too. Like when you're, it's the same concept. Like you can take all of these early biblical stuff. And you just think about it in a different light. Very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wanted to make a couple of just brief references, too, though, to some other, like, significant uh, historical scholars that mm-hmm. make references to UFOs. Just to sort of just tie this all together in the sense that, like, people were kind of, people were paying attention to this. And, uh, you know, Titus Livius, mm-hmm. 214 BCE, also known as Livy. Uh, wrote, wrote about the, the an, an Italian mm-hmm. um, chronicler, writer, historian, made multiple different references uh, to UFOs and studied UFOs, usually referred to them as phantom ships. Hmm. Um, okay. Seen gleaming in the sky, things like this. Hmm. A few years later, we've got Plutarch, who we've made reference to as well. Yeah. Historian 74 BCE. He made, he made reference and chronicled many different strange events, a lot of them UFO-related. Uh, one in particular was a historical reference he made to a battle in 74 BC, uh, BCE between the Roman army and the forces of King Merthatides. Not sure who this guy is, but the Roman army in a battle. Merthrides? Yeah. Why do we get ourselves into this? Merthrides, V of Pontius. Right? The quote here from Plutarch, though, is that during this battle, quote, with no apparent change of weather, the sky burst asunder and huge flame-like bodies were seen to fall between the two armies. In shape, it was most like a wine jar and in color like molten silver. Weird. Thousands of onlookers, including uh, the king, Merthrides himself, confirmed Mm -hmm. the truth of the story. Interesting. Kind of similar to the Tully Papyrus account. Yeah. Which I think is sort of like, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. a thousand plus years later, but pretty similar circumstances. Yeah. I going back to that Livy guy, um the Phantom Ships, hey. Mm. That almost reminds me of when we talked about that strange effect that can happen where ships seem to be floating in the Fata sky. Mor- Fata Morgana. Yeah, exactly. And they're not, but it just like has a weird effect based off just like the way the particulates are tr- like reflecting or something like right. that what is it like, yeah but yeah i know that definitely wouldn't write that off 100 percent. but like that's really interesting many prodigies that's how they refer to prodigies yeah. weird right mm-hmm. okay very very strange all right all right all right all right all right all right, <laughs> all right, all right. amber just turned into uh into uh, matthew mcconaughey from days and confused uh <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> I am pretty tasty and confused at this point. I mean, how could we not be? It's funny, guys. If like, you we, aren't, there's something wrong with yeah, you. Yeah, we get to the end of these recordings, and we basically, it's like, lost. We're looking at our watches like, the clocks are stopped. <laughs> lost time. Like, where have we been? Yep. I missed two weeks of work. Yeah, I, I right. have. Well, we're slowly getting down <laughs> to the wire of part one here. And I feel like we've only covered a handful of things. But before we kind of tie things up, we've made reference to some biblical stuff. So let's get biblical. Mm-hmm. I think is probably the appropriate title of this next section, where we have religious text references to ancient abductions and extraterrestrial encounters and craft sightings, yeah. which is just not typically what you would think of in the Bible. I don't recall that being mentioned at all in Sunday school. Uh, I would have been paying a lot more attention right? if they had. But no, obviously they're not... They're not barking up that tree. They don't want to be advertising any of those sorts of concepts. Jesus and the UFO. That's kind of like competition for Jesus, if you think about it, you know. Unless well, what Jesus if Jesus was, was an alien? <laughs> okay, now we're just here. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, let's get biblical then. So, there are, of course, some people who have taken these readings in a very specific way. Um, so, for example, in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6, there's... It's basically talking about the, quote, sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men and producing a race of giants, also known as the Nephilim, which we referenced in the Great Flood episode. Wow, does that ever sound a lot like basically every single X-Files movie ever made, right? exactly. (laughs) Just splicing that DNA. Yep. Fox Mulder would have been all over that idea. And then there's a lot of people who have taken this as an indication of this to be true. Extraterrestrial involvement, interbreeding, some sort of... And that's and that is essentially perhaps the reason for mm. these visitations, constant visitations. It's like we're you know, it's not like it's like the sea monkeys and they're like checking in on us. It's like the super distant like third kid you had and the rest of your family doesn't know about it and it's the human race and they pop in every once in a while to see how we're doing and it's usually not very good. No. I don't know. I guess so. But your your least favorite ant farm. <laughs> your least favorite <laughs> ant probably, farm. There might be a dozen of them out in the universe spread all right. over. Who knows? And then it's like maybe people being brought up to heaven is actually an abduction. So like we've got this first reference to the story of Ezekiel, five forty three BC. Yeah, actually, okay, this is a fun one too. So this might actually be one of the first abduction scenarios. Of history, of recorded history. Ever. Who knows? Imagine Someone's that. pretty important, too. Ezekiel, he did a couple of things in he his day. some things. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I still want to try and do a tasting in a completely Australian accent, see if I can get away with it. That'd be so fun. Mine's just like half <laughs> Kiwi, half Australian, so it doesn't work. Well, but if they're not, they're not from the neck of the woods, they probably wouldn't catch on to that, but you'd have to be pretty good on accents. But anyways, okay. okay. Digress. Let's get into Digress. Ezekiel, Ezekiel yes. here. Unless on that right. stuff but yeah this this scenario basically describes a case in which ezekiel is taken and held by four beings and i don't even really know how like he describes them as having four faces <laughs> and four wings each so what the heck are the these things it almost reminds me like a fairy anyways right okay so the beings were oddly described by Ezekiel as being accompanied by a wheel within another wheel that moved, quote, with the spirit, so the being, I guess, as it traveled, and, quote, when they moved, 
They went toward any of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. So that to me is describing like non-ballistic motion yeah, in exactly. the air. Yeah, yeah. Classic flying saucer-like motions or even how a superconducting magnet might behave. Yes. Uh, but this is, is a very bizarre thing. And let me just see if I can pull this up here in the book just so we can get yeah, the details let's, here. Yeah, let's do that. It almost has some sort of like, um, like it, it smacks of Stargate st- type stuff too. Like I know it's like I'm just throwing out a word, but it's like when you have when you make a comment where it's just directly in four directions, it makes mm-hmm. it sound like you you get on a road and then you there's no left or right turn to be made. You're on that, you go, right? You go. But okay, so this is kind of this is just some more imagery from Ezekiel's description here. He says, "quote." Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber, out of the mist, midst of the fire. And also from within it came the likenesses of four living creatures, and this was their appearance, that they had the likeness of man, each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. And the text goes on to say here, Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they moved, they went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went because they're the spirit because there the spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And when those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. That's very typical biblical type of talk, hey? Where it's very repetitive. Yeah, definitely. And... It's bizarre. Really cool imagery to go along with this as well. Yes, yes. We'll have to share that uh, mm-hmm. when, when we release this. That almost sounds like either what he's described, like, okay, for one, like we just said, it sounds like he's describing a craft, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And what he's also kind of sounds like he's describing is, to me, one of two things. Either the craft itself and the beings that he's describing are one entity, as if, as as if to say, mm-hmm. the craft itself is like them, how we would describe as like a biological entity. They're controlling it. It's all one thing. Mm-hmm. Or, to the same effect, it's not its own biological entity. The beans are, but they're they're able. They don't need any controls. They don't need anything like that. It's it, they've they've tapped into a much more powerful, like the power of the mind. They are controlling mm-hmm. it all with their minds and yeah. possibly conversing with him. Uh, telepathically okay. to another hallmark of UFO abduction. Even just the, the figure here of the imagery of that, where he's basically, it, I don't even, we, we should right. definitely post this on our Instagram, oh, yeah, this ab- image ab- here, because we it's will. very yeah. significant. But then he actually goes on, this isn't the end of the story yeah, here, because yeah. he does go on to actually describe what I was 
referencing earlier, the abduction scenario. So essentially, this is a direct quote from the Bible here. It says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and a written scroll was in it. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and as the glory of the Lord arose from its place, I heard behind me the sound of a great earthquake. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them that sounded like a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river Shebar, and as I sat there, and I sat there, overwhelmed among them for several days. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So he basically was lifted up and transported to a different area. Like the power of God, hand of God. That's like, sounds like you're getting beamed up. Yeah, basically. Right? Mm-hmm. Literally. And, and I know we always make like movie references, everyone, but obviously it's an audio podcast. So I feel like it helps you guys. It also helps us like mm-hmm. make connections with you guys, like throw out these references. But it also sounded a lot to me like the end of the fourth Indiana Jones movie where they end up leaving and it's like they all kind of touch each other and there's like that psychic connection mm. amongst the skulls, amongst the, oh, yeah, the things there. And hmm. that is actually all of this in slight, slightly different variations are all hallmarks of UFO abduction cases. Yes. All of them. 100%. Um, Oh, you know, it's actually interesting, too, just to kind of go along with that, too. The the comment made by Aubach and Valet at the end of this is like, they say here, it is noteworthy that the description includes some words that only appear in Ezekiel's writing once, and that some only appear once in the entire Old Testament, an indication that the prophet was indeed looking for ways to express a vision that surpassed his understanding mm-hmm. and the ability of translators to ac- accurately convey his experience. Right. You know what I mean? So it's so otherworldly that he he's searching for a way to make others understand what happened to him, but he's mm-hmm. still is unable to, to a certain degree. Like, cause even the way that, that comes across is very confusing to me. You know what I mean? Like a little bit, but right. it is, it is clear. This is the whole description of the wheels and that whole thing was like, when they went, when those went, they went <laughs> like all this kind of stuff. We're like, what are you actually trying to say? It just here? sounds as if it's like, yeah, like he can't quite make sense of it. His brain got and like the muddled up. F- yeah. And, and it obviously is like intelligent motion. It's like they're controlling and it sounds very non-ballistic. Like yeah. you said, the mm-hmm. four faces thing that almost oh, makes me yeah. think that like, his perception was either altered because of the nature of the um, the actual physical place he was in, mm-hmm. as if to say that like they brought him onto a craft possibly, but in doing so, he's actually witnessing dimensions that don't exist for us. You know what I mean? Like what he's it, seen yeah. beyond, like he's for a moment beyond he's, the flesh, right? Like he's seeing four faces but of that's, the spirit, right? And that's that's the only way he can mm. interpret it. But actually, maybe there's a lot more going on. Or there's even like the idea there's like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. No, that doesn't make sense. I'm trying <laughs> to add something like, up here. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry. Okay. okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean that is it, very strange. One of the most significant uh, biblical accounts. Hmm. Uh, which is why we wanted to kind of end things off with that one, because that is a serious like w- WTF moment in the Old Testament mm-hmm. um, taken away. Uh, but the description of the of the circles and how they were powered is just so cool. Bizarre. Bizarre. And I really do love that image in the book because I think that's very telling. Right. Absolutely. I don't know. And, yeah. and again here, we're at 543 BC. So 
Yes, this is a, a millennia past the, the Tuli papyrus reference, roughly speaking, but we still are, are, are hitting these same points. And it is a hell of a long way before Kenneth Arnold. Mm-hmm. And so just the question of whether or not <laughs> how much influence that we currently live amongst has been a product of these types of interactions. I know it's kind of people, you're going to give me a face when I say this and people are going to laugh and I'm not suggesting it, but it's a fine line to walk between believing that there are clandestine reptilians in the hollow earth. That's crazy a little bit, but fun to talk about, but it's a fine line between that and also believing that perhaps there is some sort of ancient, intelligent, divine something. It's mm-hmm. not God, or maybe it is however you interpret it, mm. but it's something to that effect that really yeah. is pulling the strings. Yeah, something beyond our comprehension. We're trying our best. <laughs> we are trying our best. So that brings us down to the end of part one here, everyone. It does. Uh, of that was super fun. Super fun. Yeah, and, and to be to be honest, I feel like maybe we'll tweak the title, actually, because Alien Airships, I think part two is going to be a little bit more airships, because yeah. mm-hmm. that's when we're getting a little bit, that just objectively sounds steampunky. <laughs> and that's very, like, 16, 17, 1800s alchemy, weird goggles, and, like, seeing airships type oh, stuff. Yeah. But It's an episode of Murdoch. <laughs> it's an episode of Murdoch. <laughs> we are still keeping things ancient when we come back, so for part two... Uh, you guys can look forward to us kicking things off with uh, one of the most prolific mm-hmm. accounts. And just in, in all of history, but it's been debunked by some. Incredibly interesting still. That is the uh, Alexander the Great UFO encounters. Yes. And we will build off of that and work our way up into some other just absolutely bizarre stuff. Medieval encounters throughout Europe. Some bizarre tall beings mm-hmm. wandering the streets of Australia. We're getting into some more oddities in print from yes. Adam, too. There's some fun nuggets in there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Adam Benedict. And, of course, um, if you haven't, go back, listen to Lodge 1908, which was their last episode we put out months ago. And uh, Adam, uh, we've been in contact with Adam, and we are really looking forward to sitting down for the second edition of Lodge 1908, where we're going to be discussing some time travel. Oh, yeah. So we're so happy to be back, you guys. Uh, I don't even it's, know what else to say. Like We're just so thankful to have the opportunity to do this for you guys and yeah. for us, too, because it's a big, it's it's fun for us, too. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's just been a hard turn um, over the last few months trying to get back into the rhythm of stuff. You know, we've got new schedules. It's just well, we're all over the place. Amber's got a brand new job, new jobs, I new do, responsibilities, I new do. things. My manager, I literally just saw the notification. She just announced my new uh role it's got a promotion so yay Yay. but it's it's yeah it's been a lot just to kind of rally from slash um yeah just get our heads around and even you know let's just be real here like after taking a break from anything it does take uh a little bit more effort to to get it back onto like you know i like to consider myself like a train you know once i get on the track once i get on track and I start to get some momentum it's a lot easier and I think a lot of you can probably uh, relate to that to a certain degree but uh, we do want to give a big shout out to all of you guys because you're amazing all the interactions we've had on social media all the messages we've had from people wondering if we're coming back is the show cancelled no it is not cancelled we are back we just needed to take a hot sec and get ourselves together right Andrew yep mostly me you know you've been you've been carrying the load floating the ship doing all that stuff and I really appreciate that and and of course all of our patreon 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 members yes our producers you've got Adam as always we've got Jackson Greenberg 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 what's we've got up? Kitsune 
We've got a lot of awesome people. <laughs> you just did Nightwing. For oh wait, sorry, sorry. Oh my gosh, <laughs> but no. Nightwing is still kicking around. Nightwing, which he's is amazing. Awesome. Yeah, uh, thank you, Nightwing. Yeah, thank you, and Kitsune. And Kitsune. And, uh, oh, Kitsune was the cute. Oh yeah, he was the uh, fox. It's like a Japanese fox or something. Yeah, I or love something that. Cool like that. I just love it, and I always mispronounce it, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. But there's just yeah, there's so many amazing amazing people uh, on on Patreon like helping us out, and uh, so yeah, you guys can uh, expect another mm-hmm. awesome Patreon episode coming too. I actually did my first ever recording by myself uh, yeah. for the last one. I think it went pretty well. There was some positive feedback. I might do some some more of those in the future, but the next one will definitely be the two of us. Yeah, let us and, know what you uh, thought of that. And yeah. Andrew, I think there's one other thing you need to hint at, perhaps. You had some fun last night with another podcast friend of ours. Oh my gosh, yes. I know this isn't coming out for a bit, right. but... Right, absolutely. Massive, massive shout out to Nick from the Tenish podcast, mm-hmm. which is just so much fun covering top 10 lists from everything under the sun. And uh, he he put me under the microscope yesterday. Uh, <laughs> and you weren't you were first. Not <laughs> I was. I thought I was going to do pretty okay. It's uh, really fun to go listen to once he releases that. Right. When's it coming out? Like I, end of the month. I think I it's think? coming out the end of the month, or maybe mm-hmm. the beginning of August or something like that. Where we're talking about, uh, or maybe I shouldn't even say, but Dang. it's it's something definitely into the portal themed. Yep. And I, uh, you can tell, <laughs> had some shaken off some rust, uh, <laughs> but it was fun. We had a blast. So shout out to Nick. Awesome show. Awesome guy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, really excited for you guys to hear that. And actually. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Nick possibly coming on for a lodge mm-hmm. episode. Might have a new lodge member on our hands Fun. here. Uh, Omno Kwamni Flunkus, uh, what Mortati. We are going to come up with our own version. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys. So much fun. Stoked to be back. Stay tuned for part two. Leave us uh, some comments. Um, wherever you listen, uh, rate and review the show if you haven't already. And shoot us an email uh, and let us know what you think about this episode and anything else you want us to cover. Because uh, we're back. So, until next time, on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre.